0: Thank you, Heavenly Father God. We just thank you, Lord. Thank you for all the benefits, Lord God, that you, Lord, you bring to us, Lord. Thank you for the benefits of salvation. Thank you for the benefits of, of fellowship with you. Thank you, Father, for our love that you put in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the benefits of having the Holy Spirit help. The Holy Spirit helps us. Thank you, Father, for giving us everything in the world through the Holy Spirit, Lord. We thank you for fire. We thank you for water. We thank you for love. We thank you for your word. And be with us as we raise this word to you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you're doing your word in our lives, Lord. We give you the glory and the honor. You honor us as we seek your presence, Lord. Thank you for this Bible study. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, 1st Samuel, chapter 14, verses 1 through 52. Here we go. One day, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come on, let's go over to where the Philistines have their outposts. But Jonathan did not tell his father of what he was doing. Meanwhile, Saul and his 600 men were camped on the outskirts of Gibeah around the pomegranate tree at Migron. Among Saul's men was Ahijah, the priest, who was wearing the epot, the priestly vest. Ahijah was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahito, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord who had served at Shiloh. No one realized that Jonathan had left the Israelite camp. To reach the Philistine outpost, Jonathan had to go down between two rocky cliffs that were called Bozes and Sina, Sene. The cliff on the north was in front of Michmash, and the, old, the one on the south was in front of Giba. Let's go across to the outposts of those pagans, Jonathan said to his armor bearer. Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle, whether he has many warriors or, jo- or only a few. <clears throat> Do what you think is best, the armor bearer replied. I'm with you completely, whatever you decide. All right, then, Jonathan told him, we will cross over and let them see us. If they say to us, stay where you are, or we'll kill you, then we will stop and not go up to them. But if they say, come on up and fight, then we will go up. That will be the Lord's sign that he will help us defeat him, defeat them. When the Philistines saw them coming, they shouted, look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. Then the man from the outpost shouted to Jonathan, come on up here and we'll teach you a lesson. Come on, climb right behind me, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, for the Lord will help us defeat them. So they climbed up using both hands and feet. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer. Kill those who come behind me. They killed some 20 men in all, and their bodies were scattered over about a half an acre. Suddenly panic broke out in the Philistine army, both in the camp and in the field, including even the outposts and raiding parties. And just then an earthquake struck. And everyone was terrified. Saul's lookouts in Gibeah and, and Benjamin saw a strange sight: the vast army of Philistine began to melt away in every direction. Call the roll and find out who's missing, Saul ordered. And when they checked, they found that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. Then Saul shouted to Ahijah, yeah. "Bring the epod here for all. For at the time." Ahihaja was wearing the ephod in front of the Israelites. But while Saul was taking talking to the priest, the confusion in the Philistine camp grew louder and louder. So Saul said to the priest, "Never mind, let's get going." Then Saul and all his men rushed out in the battle and find the Philistines killing each other. There was terrible confusion everywhere. Even the Hebrews who had previously gone over to the Philistine army. Revolted and joined in with Saul and Jonathan and the rest of the Israelites. Likewise, the men of Israel who were hiding in the hill country of Ephraim joined the chase when they saw the Philistines running away. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle continued to rage even beyond Beth Aven. Now the men of Israel were pressed to exhaustion that day because Saul had placed them under an oath, saying, let a curse fall on anyone who eats before evening, before I have full revenge on my enemies. So no one ate anything all day, even though they had all found honeycomb on the ground in the forest. They didn't dare touch the honey because they all feared the oath they had taken. But Jonathan had not heard his father's commands, and he dipped the end of his stick into a piece of honeycomb and ate the honey. After he had eaten it, he felt refreshed. But one of the men saw him and said, Your father made the army take a strict oath that anyone who eats food today will be cursed. That is why everyone is weary and faint. My father has made trouble for us all, Jonathan exclaimed. A command like that only hurts us. See how refreshed I am now that I have eaten this little bit of honey? If the men had been allowed to eat freely from the food they found among our enemies, think how many more Philistines we could have killed. They chased and killed the Philistines all day from Micmash to Aihalon, growing more and more faint. That evening they rushed for the battle plunder and butchered the sheep, goats, cattle, and calves. But they ate them without draining the blood. Someone reported to Saul, Look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that still has blood in it. That is very wrong, Saul said. Find a large stone and roll it over here. Then go out among the troops and tell them, Bring the cattle, sheep, and goats here to me. Kill them here and drain the blood before you eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with the blood still in it. So that night all the troops brought their animals and slaughtered them there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first of the altars he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let's chase the Philistines all night and plunder them until sunrise. Let's destroy every last one of them. His men replied, We'll do whatever you think's best. But the priest said, Let's ask God first. So Saul asked God, Shall we go after the Philistines? Will you help us defeat them? But God made no reply that day. Then Saul said to the leaders, Something's wrong. I want all my army commanders to come here. We must find out what sin was committed today. I vowed by the name of the Lord who rescued Israel that the sinner would surely die, even if it is my own son, Jonathan. But no one would tell him what the trouble was. Then Saul said, Jonathan and I will stand over here and all of you stand over there. And the people responded to Saul, whatever you think is best. Then Saul prayed, O Lord, God of Israel, please show us who is guilty and who is innocent. Then they cast sacred lots, and Jonathan and Saul were chosen as the guilty ones, and the people were clear innocents. Then Saul said, Now cast lots again and choose between me and Jonathan, and Jonathan was shown to be the guilty one. Tell me what you have done, Saul demanded of Jonathan. I tasted a little honey, Jonathan admitted. It was only a little bit on the end of my stick. Does that deserve death? Yes, Jonathan said. Saul said, You must die. May God strike me and even kill me if you do not die for this. But the people broke in and said to Saul, Jonathan has won this great victory for Israel. Should he die? Far from it. As assuredly as the Lord lives, no one hair of his head will be touched. For God helped him to do a great deed today. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Then Saul called back the army from chasing the Philistines, and the Philistines returned home. Now when Saul had secured his grasp on Israel's throne, he fought against his enemies in every direction, against Moab, Ammon, Edom, and the kings of Zobah and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he was victorious. He performed great deeds and conquered the Amalekites, saving Israel from all those who had plundered them. Saul's son included Jonathan, ish and Malkishua. He also had two daughters, Merev, Merab, who was the older, and Michal, Michal. Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimas. The commander of Saul's army was Abner, the son of Saul's uncle Nur. Saul's father, Kish, and Abner's father, Ner was the boss Ner were both sons of Abiel. The Israelites fought constantly with the Philistines throughout Saul's lifetime. So whenever Saul observed a young man who was brave and strong, he drafted into his army. Okay, what did you get out of this?
1: Hmm. Oh, let's see well. Beginning, I like that. What that he said is, perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. Isn't that awesome? Mm-hmm. It's like it's amazing. It seems like
0: uh, Jonathan knew the history and knew the presence. He was very close to the Lord. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. I like the way the men said, do what you think is best. It yeah. would seem mm-hmm. to be a, a, mm-hmm. a formal reply from the yes. soldiers.
1: And, and I like the way he did, um, again, over here, up at the in number 11, or past 11, 12. Yeah. It, it says, come on, climb right behind me, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, for the Lord will help us defeat them. And it's amazing how all this um, that the Philistines fell before the, him and the armor bearer and killed those who came behind them. But it says suddenly panic broke, broke out in the Philistine army, both in the camp and in the field, including even the outposts and raiding parties. And just an earthquake happened, and everyone was so scared and confused. And I mean, it, it had to be the Lord um, helping them.
0: You know. So that's right, when uh, we take little actions,
1: uh-huh.
0: you know, in God's will, uh, the Lord uh, sends us reinforcements and yeah. starts helping mm-hmm. us. Amen. The, you know, the, it will be a sign that He will help us defeat Him. So, you know, signs, you know, according to this, signs, and, uh, and the Lord is speaking to them. Yeah. You know, with... Uh,
1: I mean, it's awesome. It said, "Saul's lookouts and give you uh, Benjamin saw a strange sight: the vast army. Okay, vast has been just a a lot of uh, multitudes or whatever, huge. Um, uh, Philistines began to melt away in every direction. Amazing. Amen. Well,
0: the Lord caused yeah. this first time I see it that, and just then an earthquake struck when they were all. Mm-hmm. You know, the Lord hit the earthquake just in time. Everyone was terrified. Yeah. I mean, that is spooky.
1: And then again, you know, here, if you go in 20, it said, okay, while Saul was, well, a little bit before that, but while, while Saul was talking to the priest, the confusion in Philistine camp grew louder and louder. Louder and louder. There was so much confusion. You know, even though there's so many of them. And then in 20, it says, Then Saul and all his men rushed out to the battle and found the Philistines killing each other. It's kind of like the same thing that um, happened in in Jehoshaphat when they were... Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Like, Pastor Prince was just talking about that. They were killing each other. Remember? Mm -hmm. We have seen that this morning. Um, So... With all the confusion, they were killing each other.
0: You know, uh, right here on 29 it says, uh, "My father has made trouble for us all." John explained. <laughs> a command like that only hurts us. See how refreshed I am? Yeah. You know, uh, it sounds like he was a great, great, you know, leader and follower. Apparently, Saul must have been drinking because these are exactly what a alcoholic would would do. This kind of, you know. Uh, sentiment, decisions, you know, that it's all about, like he says, my yeah. enemies, full revenge on my enemies. He doesn't say mm-hmm. full revenge on Israel's enemies. You know, it looks like right away it's you know, oh, interesting. A, a lot of pride. You know, pride it's that it's all about me. Full revenge on Those them. are alcoholic, uh, yeah. you know, but uh, Jonathan just has a complete you know, just an amazing uh, warrior.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting that... Um, you know, it's like, if you're a leader, get God's wisdom for the situations. You know, it's like, why was this oath necessary? And why say that let the curse fall and let somebody die over that? You know, here these guys are out there, they're really tired... You know they need they need some nourishment, but Jonathan says Jonathan didn't hear that. So technically, but then over here it says you know like you said a command like that only hurts us. So it says my father has made trouble for us all. Jonathan explained. a command like that hurts us. Mm-hmm. So as a leader, you know, in the when you're leading people, you gotta be like, I mean. You got to get God's wisdom on situations. It seems to me, because that that did not help their their energy levels or their you know for them being fatigued, you know, for the work that they were needing to do. It's just like I think it's right. I think it's pride. It's like oh, today everybody says us just not eat today. You know, it's, so it's a little bit foolish, I think.
0: All right, let me go to John seven thirty one fifty three. 53 John 7, verses 31-53. to 53. It says, Many among the crowds at the temple believed in Jesus. After all, they said, Would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than the man has, this man has done? When the Pharisees heard that the crowds were whispering such things, they and the leading priests sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. But Jesus told them, I will be with you only a little longer. Then I will return to the one who sent me. You will search for me, but not find me, and you cannot go where I'm going. The Jewish leaders were puzzled by this statement. Where is he planning to go, they asked. If he's thinking of leaving the country and going to the Jews in other lands, maybe he will even teach the Greeks. What does he mean when he says, you will search me, but not find me, and you cannot go where I'm going? On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who will be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. When the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared, Surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting. Others said, He is the Messiah, Still others said, But he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? For the Scripture clearly says that the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. So the crowd was divided about him. Some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. When the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, Why didn't you bring him in? We have never heard anyone speak like this. The guards responded, Have you been led astray too? The Pharisees mocked. Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believe in him? This foolish crowd follows him, but they are ignorant of the law. But God's curse is on them. Then Nicodemus, the teacher who had met Jesus earlier, spoke up, Is it legal to convict a man before he is giving a hearing? asked. Yes. They replied, Are you from Galilee too? <laughs> Search the scriptures and see for yourself no prophet ever comes from Galilee. Amen. Okay, let's just speak about this. Okay. Um. Apparently, the the G- Jesus' voice, whatever he said, had great weight. Mm, with amen. the Jewish leaders, were puzzled by the statement. Where is he planning to go? Mm-hmm. You know, they were terrified of their, you know, their position taken away and their their earnings, like a union. Uh-huh. You try to mess with the teamsters union and break up their. People, it's like communism, you know. Mm -hmm. Those guys had it together and they had guards and stuff. I mean, they're supposed to be the, can you imagine if the Catholic priest had guards and stuff and says, hey, and they they treat people roughly and arrest people and so forth? This is, uh, and I like what it says, the rivers of living water will flow from, not from the belly, but from the heart, Amen. He was speaking of the Spirit who was given Uh to everyone believing in him. Right. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not entered into his glory. I like the way he says glory of John seventeen. Okay. And the bottom they also didn't know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So Okay. Uh, reading, the, praying the Psalms, we pray for believers around the world enduring against the kingdom of darkness. We ask God to hear their prayers and save them because of his unfailing love. Let's pray for believers. Lord, we just pray, Lord God, that you're the shepherd of believers. We ask you to protect them. You're, you're their warrior, Lord. Protect, Lord, the people all around the world, Lord, that are fighting against the forces of darkness, Lord. Give them, Lord God, just like you gave Jonathan, Lord. Give them reinforcements and signs Mm. that you're there with them, Lord. Amen. Amen. Psalm 109, 1 through 31. Would you like to read it?
1: Sure. Um, 109, yeah. Uh, God, oh God, or God whom I praise, don't stand silent and aloof, While the wicked slander me and tell lies about me. They surround me with hateful words and fight against me for no reason. I love them but they try to destroy me with accusations, even as I'm praying for them. They repay evil for good and hatred for my love. They say get an evil person to turn against them. Send an accuser to bring him to trial when his case comes up for judgment. Let him be pronounced guilty. Count his prayers as sins. Let his years be few. Let someone else take his position and his wife a widow. No, it says, um, May his children become fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander as beggars and be driven from their ruined homes. May creditors seize his entire estate and strangers take all he's earned. Let no one be kind to him. Let no one pity his fatherless children. May all his offspring die. May may his family name be blotted out in a single generation. May the Lord never forget the sins of his fathers. May his mother's sins never be erased from the record. May the Lord always remember these sins and may his name disappear from human memory. For he refused all kindness to others. He persecuted the poor and needy and he hounded the brokenhearted to death. He loved to curse others. Now you curse him. He never blessed others. Now don't you bless him. No, now you, don't you bless him. Cursing is as natural to him as his clothing or the water he drinks or the rich food he eats. Now may his curses return and cling to him like clothing clothing, or the water he drinks or the rich food he eats. Now may his curses return and cling to him. I think I read it again. Sorry about that. <laughs> may his curses return and cling to him like clothing may they be tied around him like a belt and may those curses become the lord's punishment for my accusers who speak evil of me but deal well with me O sovereign lord for the sake of your own reputation rescue me because you're so faithful and good for i am poor and needy and my heart is full of pain I'm fading like a shadow at dusk. I'm brushed off like a locust. My knees are weak from fasting, and I am skin and bones. I'm a joke to people everywhere. When they see me, they shake their heads in scorn. Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me because of your unfailing love. Let them see that this is your doing, that you yourself have done it, Lord. Then let them curse me if they like, but you will bless me. When they attack me they will be disgraced, but I, your servant, will go right on rejoicing. May my accusers be clothed with disgraced disgrace may their humiliation cover them like a cloak. But I will give repeated thanks to the Lord, praising him to every one, for he stands beside the needy, ready to save them from those who condemn them. Amen. Amen. Okay, Proverbs fifteen, five to seven says, Only a fool despises a parent's discipline. Whoever learns from correction is wise. There is treasure in the house of the godly, but the earnings of the wicked bring trouble. Wow, there is treasure in the house of the godly, but the earnings of the wicked bring trouble. The lips of the wise give good advice. The heart of a fool has none to give. Amen.
0: Today is May 13. a wise child accepts a parent's discipline, a mocker refuses to listen to correction, Proverbs 13.2, wise words will win you a good meal, but treacherous people have an appetite for violence. Those who control their tongue will have a long life. Opening your mouth can ruin everything. Lazy people want much but get little, but those who work hard will prosper. The godly hate lies. The wicked cause shame and disgrace. Godliness guards the path of the blameless, but the evil are misled by sin. Some who are poor pretend to be rich. Others who are rich pretend to be poor. The rich can pay a ransom for their lives but the poor won't even get threatened. The life of the godly is full of light and joy, but the light of the wicked will be snuffed out. Pride leads to conflict. Those who take advice are wise. Wealth from get-rich schemes quickly disappear. Wealth from hard work grows over time. Hope deferred makes a heart sick. But a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. People who despise advice are asking for trouble. He who respects a command will succeed. The instructions of the wise is like a life-giving fountain. Those who accept it avoid the snares of death. A person with good sense is respected. A treacherous person is headed for destruction. Wise people think before they act, fools don't, and even brag about their foolishness. An unreliable messenger stumbles into trouble, but a reliable messenger brings healing. If you ignore criticism, you will end in poverty and disgrace. If you accept correction, you will be honored. It is pleasant to see dreams come true, but fools refuse to turn their evil to attain them. Turn from evil. Walk with the wise and become wise. Associate with fools and get in trouble. Trouble chases sinners while blessings reward the righteous. Good people have an inheritance to their, leave an inheritance to their children's grandchildren. But the sinners, good people leave an inheritance to their grandchildren. But the sinner's wealth passes to the godly. Amen. A a poor person's farms may produce much food, but injustice sweeps it all away. Those who spare the rod of of discipline hate their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. The godly eat to their heart's content, but the belly of the wicked goes hungry. Amen. Amen. Psalm 43, Declare me innocent, O God, defend me against this ungodly people, rescue me from those unjust liars, for you are God, my only safe haven. Why have you tossed me aside? Why must I wander around in grief, oppressed by my enemies? Send out your light and your truth, let them guide me, let them lead me to your holy mountain, to the place where you live. There I will go to the altar of God, to God, the source of all my joy. I will praise you with my heart, O God, my God. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so set? I will put my hope in God. I will praise Him again, my Savior and my God. Amen. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envy the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't even have trouble like other people. They do not. They are not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jewel necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts desire or could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only on evil. In their pride they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens and their words throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people, anyone enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you put them in slippery path and send them slinging over the hill to destruction. In an instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Then I realized that my heart was bitter, and I was all torn up inside. I was foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me in a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My help may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, but you, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near to God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter. I will go and tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. 74, we go to Psalm. Actually, that was Psalm. Okay, Psalm 103. Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart, I will praise His holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things He has done for me. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagles. Yeah. Amen. The Lord gives instructions and justice to all who who are treated unfairly. He revealed His character to Moses and His deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For His unfailing love towards those who fear Him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is the Father to His children, tender and compassionate to those who fear Him. For He knows how weak we are. He remembers that we are only dust. Our days on earth are like grass, And wildflowers that bloom and die. The wind blows and we are gone. And though we had never been there now. But the the love of the Lord remains forever with those who fear Him. His salvation extends to His children's children. Of those who are faithful to His covenant. Of those who obey His commandments. The Lord has made the heavens His throne. From there He rules over everything. Praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who carry out his plans, listening for each of his commands. Yes, praise the Lord, you army of angels who serve him and do his will. Praise the Lord, everything he has created, everything in all his kingdom. Let all that I am praise the Lord. Amen. Now we go to Psalm 133, I believe. that's correct? Yes, 133 verse 1, how wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. For harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head, that ran down his beard and unto the border of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has pronounced his blessing, even life forevermore. Amen.
2: Amen. Visual reminder all throughout the day. What I want doesn't matter. I don't get a vote. Guys will call me and they'll tell me, oh, yeah, I got this problem. And they'll tell me the problem. And I go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you find a vote around your house someplace? Because you don't get a vote. I'm sorry, something's wrong here. Oh, you're right, right. You know, if nothing else, I always use the expression "Be where your feet are." If you have to, lean forward and look down at your feet. We're right here in this room right now. If the chatter is trying to take you to work or to lunch or to dinner tonight or to the meeting you're chairing in an hour, you're not in the present moment. You're missing God. The only place you can find God is right here, right now. God will be in the future, but you can't go into the future yet because not the present. So you can't connect with God in the future and God is no longer in the past and if your mind's in the past, you're not in the present moment. That's what our ego you know, Harry Tebow, I talked about him earlier that's the job of your ego is to get you out of the present moment and the way it does that, it goes into the past it takes some bad experience, then it projects it in the future, Is watch out, this is gonna happen, and guess what it just did very creatively, it hopscotched right over the present moment and you're no longer in the only place you can connect to your power greater than yourself, the present moment so the goal is just to get back to the present moment. One of the easiest tools, like I said, is breathing. We do it a thousand times a day. Thousands and thousands of times a day. But how, how often do we actually think about our breath? We don't. So everybody sit up in your chairs. All right? <clears throat> Put your feet squarely on the floor. And be comfortable. all right? And imagine a string coming out the top of your head. Somebody just pulls you up really quickly and then lets you down. And what I like to say is relax with dignity. So that you're not hyperextending your spine. You just want to relax with dignity. And if you're like me and you've got a little roly-poly around the front, nobody will, nobody will look, I promise. Just pick it up and get it up over the top of the belt because we're going to breathe. We don't want anything restricting the breath. All right? Hand position. you got two different, really, there's a whole bunch of different ways. You can have your palms up. From the Oriental traditions, if your palm's up, you're open. You're allowing God to send stuff to you. You're, you're receiving, because that's the position we do. We reach our hands out. We're open. If you turn your hands over, then you're not asking for something. You're just kind of sitting there, and you're, you're content. You're looking into yourself with your hands over. Some people will lay their hands open to each other, and they'll touch their thumbs as if they're cupping like a little egg or something between their hands, just so that they have something to do with their hands. All I care about is that you relax. I don't care whether up, down, left, right... Just relax. I don't want any stress or any tension in your hands. All right? And, and what I want you to do is to take two deep breaths into what's called the Tan Tien in the Japan tradition. It's two inches below your belly button and two inches deep. So you're not going to breathe up in your chest, which we all tend to do when we get stressed. Most people in addiction breathe from the top of their chest. I want you to breathe into your belly. All right? So when I do it, I'm going to say, take two deep breaths really quickly, you know, a normal pace, but I want them to be controlled this is the first thing I want you to do is going to be controlled so you have some control to start with. And then after that, just let your breath go and just see if you can experience it. You'll notice that when we started this, we burned a little sage and it irritated some people. Everybody said, what is that? You know what I did? I brought every one of you into this room with that sage because you smoked it and you went, wow, you weren't in the hamster. You were here. You were right here right now. Whether you liked the smell, whether you didn't like the smell, it brought you right here. I'm gonna use a chime, see if you can hear the chime and how long you can hear the chime to bring you to the center, center moment. So what I'm gonna ask you to do is take your two breaths, then listen to the chime, then I'm gonna sit down. We're just gonna be quiet for, I don't know, 30, 60 seconds, we'll see, and we'll go from there, okay? Everybody got the instructions? All right, two breaths. people heard somebody coughing outside. Fantastic. Guess what? You had to be here to hear that. That cough is never going to occur again at the exact same time. And what brought you the cough? The air you were breathing. The sound waves went through the air and that's what you were focused on. It brought you to the present moment. Anybody hear somebody next to them that had a whistling nose? You know, one of those and you're thinking, and your mind immediately went to, I wish they'd stop that because I'm trying to meditate here. It's all about me, right? Guess what? You're in the present moment. When you get those thoughts where the hamster tries to get you out there again, your ego's trying to get you out of the present moment, once you're awake to it, just bring your mind back. It only takes a few seconds to do it. I try to do it at least every four hours to sit down and just take three, four minutes to be conscious of it and to, to say, God, your will not mind be done and to take a little meditation. They're really doing... The last decade they're calling it the year of the brain. They're doing some amazing studies on the brain, they're finding all kinds of interesting information. A lot of the more progressive hospitals have started to do prayer meditation. And they call it BHMR or something like that. And what they're teaching is breathing exercises combined with yoga for their terminally ill patients. And for the patients that actually pass, they're doing post-mortems on them, and they're studying their brains, and they're finding some amazing statistics and studies. They're finding more grey matter, they're finding less chances of Alzheimer's. Uh, most of the people in recovery have some tendency towards ADD or ADHD, where we tend to get distracted. Oh, look at the bird! You know, type brain. That's how our brains work. You know, they're finding the pre-meditation. When they do these studies, and they, the people that have been praying and meditating on a regular basis, they do it for two or three weeks or a month, and then they bring them back and they put them in. They put them in a simulator and they give them advanced tasks very quickly. And the people that have been praying and meditating. Can process through the task and focus down and get to the task they need to quicker. It's helping. It's helping fight all kinds of brain diseases just by simple current meditation. They're also finding very significant increases in white blood count, which is your immune system. It boosts your immune system. We are under siege from information technology. How many people have crackberries? They calling them crackberries for a reason. You know, they did a study of uh, 22 and unders at a, one of the local at a, at a university in in the states, and they found on average. The kids were getting up three times a night to check their emails in their, in, on their crackberries. Now you've got Facebook, and you've got all these other information media that's a constant barrage, and it's constantly vibrating. Well, in the big, big book, it talks about a day of rest. When was the last time you turned off every bit of information technology, no TV, no radio, no iPhone, no iPad, no i-anything, and you just work, you know? When you're sitting there doing nothing, doesn't mean you're doing nothing. You're doing something if you're conscious and you're awake to it. But most of us, our mind says, get me to whatever. I really want to be doing this, or I want to listen to this. I want, I want, I want, I want. That's selfish. We're supposed to be selfless. You know, wonderful technique. Who's got my raisins? Pass out raisins. I need everybody to get a raisin. All right? <laughs> we need some raisins out there. All right? What I'm going to talk about, we talked about breath, right? Breath is one of those things we do anywhere from 17 to 23,000 times a day. How many people in here eat on a daily basis? Okay. How many people in here are concerned about their weight? Right? One of the reasons that I look this way is because I comfort eat. I don't know if any of you comfort eat. You know, anybody ever been upset with a relationship and eating half a gallon of hagen You know, yeah, yeah. All right. That's comfort eating. If taken to an extreme, it can become morbid obesity, which can become an addiction in and of itself. All right. Well, one of the things that I'd like you to do, since you're doing this every day anyway, let's take one bite and one breath before every single meal, and we focus in on it. You can do your meditation as simple as that. So, Hopefully, when you, before you eat, you've washed your hands and you're ready to go, and before you dig in, you say for a prayer of thanks. Thank you, God. I give you some gratitude for your food that's before you. right? Now, before you eat, try taking a breath. Just do one breath in and focus. Get into the present moment. All right? And when you guys get to the back row, let me know about the raisins. Because I want everybody to have a raisin. All right? And then we're going to talk about a food meditation, which if you've never done a food meditation, it's cool. A lot of the... Uh, Monks, they do meditation, but they they go quiet. They're silent during their meditation, and they're meditating on their food. But very few people will tell you how to do it. And so I'm one of the crazies. I will tell you how I learned how to do food meditation. Um, Everybody got a raisin? Nope, we got some here, and they need some raisins. All right. There, you can light the candle, please. All right. Most people don't realize this, but when you're when you're touching something like a raisin, right? You're feeling it in the palm of your hand, and we think of feelings. You know, you hurt my feelings. We use word feeling all over the place. Well, here's one time when we really do use feeling. The thing is, you're not using one kind of feeling. There's a set of nerves in your hand that's weighing that, that's saying, oh, this weighs just like this. I've got this in my hand, all right. There's another set of feelings that's saying, this is the temperature of it. You ever been to touch a hot stove and you come back so fast, you're thinking, man, that was red hot, it should have burned me. Why didn't I? Different set of nerves took over. Because the, pers- the feelings that said, hey, let's see how much this thing weighs, let's get the tactile sense, you'd be way burned. It's a different set of nerves. It's actually two different sets of nerves. There's something called proprioception, which is a fancy word, which means there's part of your brain that's taken up, just knowing where your arms and your hands and stuff are at all times and one of the worst diseases you can ever get is to lose proprioception. You know, you've all had it. Maybe you sleep on your, on your arm in the middle of the night and you roll over and you, oh, whoa. I threw my arm out one night. threw it out of my own bed. It was like, whoa, what was that? It scared the hell out of me. It was my own arm. For temporarily, I lost my proprioception. I couldn't feel it. So part of what your senses are is it's telling you about this raisin. Look at the raisin. Everybody's raisin is unique. My raisin isn't the same as your raisin. We have a different raisin. That's part of uniqueness. To look at your raisin, you can only be right here, right now, looking at your raisin. This little teeny piece of fruit that's in your hand, right? All right? Everybody got their raisin, they see the raisin, they know the raisin. You can name your raisin if you want to. I don't care. All right? Hold it up and see if you can smell your raisin. It should smell different. Everybody gets a little bit different sense of smell. Some people smell very well, some people don't. Some people smell the person sitting next to them and they wish they smelling their raisin. Alright? Now, take your raisin, put it on your tongue, but do not chew, just taste your raisin. Feel the tactile sense of those little edges on your tongue. Can you feel the sweetness, Can can you sense the aroma in your nose even though it's coming through your tongue, the taste? Now, move the raisin around in your mouth, let it touch the top of your tongue. The back of your teeth. Don't chew it. Yet, not yet. Don't steal that piece. Let's just feel your raisin. Everybody got it? Now, bite into it and feel how the texture changes while you chew. It's getting a little mushy. You're adding a little saliva. The flavor is more pungent It's sweeter. The taste is dripping down your tongue. What a sensation. Smell it again with your tongue. Smell it like a snake. Wow, get the flavor. When you're ready and you've chewed it, Swallow it and feel it go down your throat. Now that's a unique eating experience that only you had. Your experience was different than your experience, than your experience. Everybody had a unique experience in the present, in the now. That's the cool deal about eating meditation. And you're going to do it three times a day probably, some of us more. So why not take a second and thank God for it. Take a quick breath in, get yourself in the present moment, get up, hamster off the wheel, and then eat one bite. All I'm asking is one bite of whatever it is. If it's Hagendas, it's Hagendas. If it's a raisin, it's a raisin. If it's yogurt, I don't care what it is. Enjoy the moment. And you'll find that after a while, you'll do it more and more and more. Make sense? Cool. The last There's two more things I want to talk about. One is what traditionally they call a meta meditation, which is really like a mantra. It's like a chant. One of the typical ones, and you can use anything you want as your topic. Normally, people repeat in threes when they do it. What I was taught by a guy out in New Long Island, was may I be well and happy, may I be free from anger? may I be free from suffering. Those were the three chants. I've modified them a little bit. I still do well and happy. May I be free from anger and suffering, right? And then I ask for free from selfishness, right? When I do that, I'm saying it in my mind's eye. I'm not actually saying it out loud. Although sometimes when I'm by myself, I will say it out loud. People look at you strange when you're in the market and you're talking to yourself. May I be well and happy. May I be free from anger. May I be free from suffering. Pick whatever you want. Whatever you want to bring into your life, it begins with you. Start with that. And you just say it over and over and over again. They call it a meta-meditation. Once you get, you get that feeling in your heart where everything's okay, and you feel like you're in the present moment, then pick somebody you love. May they be well and happy. May they be free from anger. May they be free from suffering. And you can work your way all the way up to, May the world be well and happy. May the world be free from anger. May the world be free from suffering. It's another technique. I took a piece from that because I wanted to give it to somebody else. And I came up with something I like to call the love light meditation. Ever stare at something like the flame of that candle? and And you stare at it, and you stare at it, and you stare at it. And then you close your eyes and you can still see the light in your mind's eye? That's why that candle is there. Right? So what I'd like you to do is pick somebody that you love. It could be a child, it could be your best friend, it could be your sponsor, just somebody that you you love in your heart. You've got no aggression, you know, no anxiety. You just love them for who you love them for. You just got that warm love. Everybody got somebody in the mind? Alright? And what I want you to do is I want you to stare at the candle for 10, 15 seconds and get that burning image in your mind. And close your eyes. And when you close your eyes, I want you to try to imagine that white light dropping down. I call it the drop. Because remember, we're going to get out of our mind to find out, right? So when we close our eyes, we can see the image in our mind. Drop it down into your heart of hearts, into your soul, into your guts, and feel the love. And don't and feel. see if you don't just feel it cooking inside of you. You just get this warm feeling it comes over you. Then get the image of that person that you started with, and see if you can, in your mind's eye, Send that feeling to them, almost like you could just throw it to them and feel what you feel. See if you have an experience with it. That's a Love Light meditation. It'll only take a few seconds, but i would used this meditation at where I send Love Light and then I'll call the person up and they'll say, you were just meditating for me. I got this image of your head in my mind. You know, you got to stop it. I was in the middle of a business meeting. All I could see was your smiling face. You know, I appreciate you, Rob. You got to back off. It's like, okay, I know it got through. The experience isn't for them, the experience is for you to develop compassion and love in your heart to somebody you already love, to enhance against that, alright? So let's see if we can give that a try. Let's stare at the light for 10-15 seconds, see if you can get in your mind's eye, and see if you can get the drop, and if you have any experience in your gut with it. Good afternoon. I'm powerless over alcohol. My name is Dave Fredrickson. And if uh, some of you might be curious as to why I announced myself that way, when I first got sober, that's how the old timers did it. They didn't say they were an alcoholic. That started after I got sober, even saying uh, that my name is so and so, I'm an alcoholic. Because the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. How do you tell a guy who's brand new walking through the door who doesn't know anything about this disease to say, oh, you have to say you're an alcoholic? I see it happen all the time in meetings. But to close meeting, the question we look at them is, do you have a desire to stop drinking? If so, yeah, come on in. You have a chair. We're welcome to have you. You know, I've seen people try to actually throw members out because they wouldn't say they're alcoholic. We well, they has no idea what an alcoholic is. He doesn't understand about the body, the mind, the spiritual part of this disease. You know? <clears throat> and uh, I've recently been going back and listening to a lot of the old timers. You know, Bill Wilson, Dr. Bob, Abby Thatcher, Sister Ignatia, Lois, uh, Ann Smith. Uh, there's some great archived uh, talks that they gave at various conventions and stuff. And when you listen to them, they get whoever announces them, they come up to the podium and they share that just like that. They say they're powerless over alcohol and they, they use their name, whatever it happens to be. Um, so I love that part of the tradition, you know, to carry it on. Um, one of the reasons that, that I wanted to have this meeting, and I love this format, the fact that we're uh, alcoholics and Al-Anons together, is uh, because the program founded together. It was a family disease. When the magic happened with Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob out in Akron. Bill lived with Bob and Ann Smith. And they were doing Oxford Group principles. And they, they were practicing their morning prayer meditation together. And the mover and shaker behind that wasn't Bill Wilson or Dr. Bob. And if you read some of the history that we've got, it was really Ann Smith. She was the big mover and shaker. She was the spiritual one. And she was encouraging everybody to get closer to the Spirit, which she had learned from her mother. And Lois also learned from her mother that it had been passed down to them as part of their training, you know, to have a relationship with God of their own understanding. So it was a very natu- natural transition. So from 1935, when that magic happened, uh, for the next 16 years, there was one program. We worked together, the al and the A's. If you showed up as a newcomer at Dr. Bob's house, he'd look at you and say, where's your wife? Because most of the most of the drugs were men, and they said, "Well, she's at home." they would say, "Well, you bring her next week, or I'm going to go get her myself." It was a family deal. <clears throat> and they worked the program together. Now, the, the women tended to work with the women, the men tended to work with the men, because they had a very early case of thirteen stepping that occurred uh, with uh, one of the earliest alcoholics and one of the, the the first female alcoholic that came in. And Dr. Bob didn't have a very really good taste for that. He was pretty upset. They didn't know how they were going to work with women, and his worst fears were confirmed. As a matter of fact, it actually occurred on his examination table in his office. And When, when they got walked in upon, the, uh, the woman broke into the case, stole a bunch of the drugs he had in his case, and then they, he, she and the other guy jumped out the window, and they never saw her again. <clears throat> it probably, that 13th step probably cost her her life, you know. So it, from that point forward, the women worked with the women, which means the Al-Anon women were 12-stepping alcoholic women. You know, because we work the same twelve steps, and <clears throat> I just got this as a gift. <clears throat> it's a wonderful book. If you've never seen it, it's a publication from Al-Anon. It's World Service Conference Al-Anon Family Literature Approved. It was published in 1986, for those who are interested. And on page 89 of this book, <clears throat> it control it, it should, has a picture of the list of literature that was available from Al-Anon. And if you look down the list. Purposes and Suggestions for Al-Anon Family Groups, Uh, One Wife Story, The Non-Alcoholic, God Bless Him in AA, uh, Suggested Programs for Meetings, Suggested Reading, uh, About the Alcoholic Husband, Wait a Minute, Can This Be Correct? The Big Book, Alcoholics Anonymous, sold by Al-Anon World Services. You know, it wasn't until 1962 that the convention got founded, for, for or 61 I guess it was, the Al-Anon World Service Convention where they decided and there was a turf war between AA and, 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 and Al-Anon, and they decided that Al-Anon was going to produce Al-Anon literature and they weren't going to use any AA literature and vice versa. And I, and it, to me, it was one of the, the most shameful events that have occurred in our, in our recovery because for an alcoholic, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, this thing, is where we get the 12 steps and how to work the 12 steps. That's what the first 100 were using, and that's where... Our program was founded, you know, and the whole purpose of the book, as I said this morning, was to prevent garbling and distortion of the message. And it's amazing when you read it. When we first come here as an alcoholic, we're here to get sobriety, right? Our issue is alcohol. But I, I always describe Alcoholics Anonymous as the biggest shell game in the world because the guy comes walking in the door looking for help with alcohol, and we all sudden, as soon as he gets in here, we go, and we switch the shells. And we say, this program's not about uh, about alcohol, it's about finding a relationship with a power greater than yourself. It just so happens that the byproduct of that is, you don't want to drink alcohol. So the guy comes in here thinking you're going to teach him how to drink or how not to drink, and all we do is we switch the chairs on him real quick and we say, oh, oh, by the way, we're here to talk about God. You know, And that's the deal. This is about a spiritual relationship. All of Alcoholics Anonymous is about a spiritual relationship. Same thing with al since we work the same 12 steps. Right? What does the 12th step say? Having had a spiritual awakening as the result. We have one result, folks, to wake up your spirit. It's not a result. It's the result. It's to have this relationship with a God of your own understanding. That's the whole deal. That's where the rubber meets the road. And that comes in our step work in steps 10 and 11. That's why I wanted to talk to you about steps 10 and 11. I call the section that we're working on, out of the big book, it comes from pages 83 through 88 and 164, right? So there's six pages out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. In those six pages, there's 12 prayers and 12 meditations. So in AA, there's a, a book called The Twelve and Twelves, Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions. Most people call that the Twelve and Twelve. When I'm working with my guys, when I say the word Twelve and Twelve, they know that I mean the Twelve Prayers and Twelve Meditations. Because when they call me and they say, Hey, Dave, I haven't talked to you in three or before, days," One of the very first questions that comes out of my mouth is, How's your 12 and 12 going? How's your relationship with God? Because everything else is secondary. If, if they tell me, well, I haven't been doing the 12 and 12 and my pre-meditation life's been off, I already know why they're calling me. They're calling me because character defects have come back. They're in fear. Their life isn't working properly. If they, if, oh, if they say, man, my 12 and 12 has been firing. I've been having some of the neatest experiences, I got a new newcomer this week, I know this is, I can just kind of breathe a sigh of relief. It's like, whew, it's going to be an easy conversation. This is going to be a neat one because you know, I know they're, they're not in emotional distress. So part of my goal here is to teach about what does the book say, 12 and 12, what were Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob doing, Ann Smith and Lois, in the, in the early days, and then give you some ideas. Because I would say that 95%, and I'm just pulling these numbers out of my own experience, and there's nothing scientific to it, I'm just guessing. I would guess that 95% of the people in recovery were a prey as part of their recovery program. At some point, they're taught to pray. Most of us do that. When it comes to meditation, I would say it's maybe, a big number would probably be about 5% of people in the rooms meditate, but we're given three instructions out of the book. Prayer, meditation, and vision. And most people have never heard the expression vision, and I would say it's less than 1% that do any vision work. So hopefully I'm going to spark your curiosity to get you look in here and and, and understand what prayer, meditation, and vision, and what a powerful spiritual tool that is to change your life. Everybody get a sheet, a handout sheet. No? There's sort hands in the back. Would, would you come hand some of these out, Make sure everybody gets one of these things. On this sheet, I've put the 12 prayers and 12 meditations. I put this thing together. And if you have if you haven't gotten one, keep your hand up and they'll bring you one to you. I put this thing together because of the internet. I'd start working with guys like the, my, my buddies here who are handing these flyers out. They're from Saskatchewan. Uh, Saskatoon, Canada or someplace up there. uh, They're up there, eh? You know? I call these guys up and I'm talking to them them over an internet connection, over Skype. It's a video conferencing that's free over the internet. And I'm explaining to them about prayer and meditation and they're, they're getting it and I'm having them highlight in their big book. It's much easier if I do that and I also just send them an email. So I put it into a document form so I can fire it up there to them real quick. On this sheet, I use a steady edition of the big book. So if you look down at the bottom of the sheet, it says there's numbers on the front of the sheet. One, two, and three. Those are the first three prayer meditations and visions. The first number is the page number. So the first one's on page 83. The number after the colon is the paragraph. If there's a part of a paragraph that starts the page, that's colon zero. And so the first full paragraph would be colon one. It helps you find it quicker. So if you have your big book, open it up to page 83 and let's look at 83... Uh, the first paragraph on on the page. Count up four lines from the bottom and it says, so we clean house with the family, asking. Anytime the big book is telling you to ask, it's a prayer. We're asking God for something is the implication. So I have my guys put a square around that, that word. That tells me that this is a prayer. So we're asking each morning. That's where I get that this is. these are the 12 prayers and 12 meditations we're supposed to be doing every single day. You know, this is not an optional deal. This is telling me I'm supposed to be asking every single morning in meditation, so there's the meditation piece, so now I've got prayer and meditation, that our Creator, you notice that Creator is capitalized, capital C? There, anytime you see a word in the big book that's capitalized in the middle of a sentence that shouldn't be capitalized, Bill Wilson is making a reference to a God of your own understanding. So one of the questions that I first throw out at people is, what is your conception of your creator? It's a wonderful meditation to sit down sometime and think, how did I get here? Who made me? What's my relationship with my creator? All right? There's your first challenge for you. If you haven't ever done that, it's kind of a neat meditation, but I don't want to get distracted. So we've got, we're, we're, we're doing this for our family. So this is the ninth, what I call the ninth step prayer because we're asking each morning for our family in meditation that my creator show us the way. Well, if I'm asking God to show me the way, I'm asking him to give me a vision of what it looks like. So there's where I get prayer, meditation, and vision, right? To show me the way of patience, tolerance, kindliness, and love. Well, what does patience look like? You know, I know what impatience looks like. When I think about it, that's what comes to my mind when my kid's coming into my office and I'm busy doing something and he's like, Dad, Dad, could you help me with that? I'm like, what? There's impatience. There's intolerance. There's sometimes, very often, lack of kindness. And it certainly isn't loving, so I can hit all four. I know what it looks like not to do those things, but what am I asking here? I'm asking God to show me what does it look like to be in that exact same situation and show him patience or tolerance or kindness and love. And one of my greatest tools that I've gotten from this book is later on in one of the stories, it talks about how the alcoholic is a tornado roaring through the lives of others. Well, if I'm the tornado because I'm the alcoholic, and I'm spinning, who's the first life that I hit? My beautiful wife, Brenda. She gets the majority of my abuse. Right? So I start with her. And then I go from Brenda to Duke and Noah. In my morning meditation, I think, what does it look like to have patience, tolerance, kindness, and love towards Brenda? All right? Once I've done that, what very often jumps into my mind is something within the last two or three days where I wasn't patient, kind, tolerant, or loving. So I make a note. I need to clean that up, whatever that happens to be. And then I get a vision in my head. I I call them little movies. I try to get a movie of what does it look like to be patient, tolerant, kind, and loving towards each member of my family. The beauty of this thing, folks, is once you've got that vision, that video in your head, it doesn't have to change. You don't have to reinvent the wheel every morning. The first couple times you sit down to do this, it's probably going to take you 45 minutes to go through all 12 prayers and 12 meditations to gain the proper vision. Once you have it, you've got it. So I can sit down in the morning, and, and I was telling them this morning at the 6 a.m. meeting, when I was talking about this, I timed it for seven days this past week to see how long I spent. It averaged for me seven minutes to do this work, right? So when you first start it, don't ex- it's, it it's, it's a chore. It takes a while. So you take the sheet, and you take your big book, and you go through, and you can make little notes in the margins and stuff. But once you get it, it becomes a way of life. And I was telling them this morning, because AA is not something I do. It says, in a number of different places, it says that this is a way of living. A is something that I live, right? 12 steps aren't something that I do, they're something I live. My job is something that I do. I go there and I do it in order to get a paycheck. I provide service while I'm there. It's not my life. It's not the way of life for me. It's it's my occupation, right? This is a way of life because it's a spiritual way. It's the way I go through and, and I live my life as I live by these spiritual principles. Does that make sense? All right, so pray. we pray for patience, tolerance, kindness, and love. There's our first prayer, meditation, and vision. That's the first prayer, all right? You notice the very next sentence on the page. The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. There it is again. It's not something we do. It doesn't say the 12 steps are something you have to do. It says the spiritual life is a way of living, all right? And the reason I'm hammering on that so much is... Let me read you some quotes, all right? This comes from Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age, which is one of the history books from, from on the AA side, page 70, colon 3. It says, How well I remember our morning meditations when Anne would sit in the, re- in the corner by the fireplace and read from the Bible, and then we would hold together in stillness, awaiting inspiration and guidance for our lives. That's what they were doing. The first 100 would get together as a group with fellowship. They would read some spiritual truth, and then they think, how am I going to apply that in my life? And they get a vision for how can I make the world a better place because I'm in it and I'm sober. You know? You'll know, you notice that that's one of my mantras that I use all the time. I tell that to every one of my guys when I, before I hang up. I say, okay, what's your homework? And I, I talk to them like a teacher. And I say, this is your homework assignment, A, B, C. And you'll see that all the heads that are nodding right now, those are the guys that I work with, you can tell. And then I'll usually say, now, give me an example. What are you going to go do to make the world a better place because you're in it and you're sober? That's a way of life, it's a way of thought as we go forward. From our history book Pass It On, 114 1. We would sit down and try to rid ourselves of any spots of the material world and see if we couldn't find out the best plan for our lives for that day, and to follow whatever guidance that came to us. From Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers, another one of our history books, 314. 4. Dr. Bob's morning devotion consisted of a short prayer, a twenty-minute study of a familiar verse from the Bible, in a quiet period of waiting for direction as to where he, uh, that day, should uh, find use for his talents. Having heard, he would religiously go about his father's business as he put it. That's what these folks were doing. Well, if they were doing that, I tried not doing it, and as you heard my story a couple of ago, it didn't come off real well for me. It's much easier to go back and let's do, let's copy what they have. If I want what they have, I have to do what they did. That's where this came from. Right? <clears throat> Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers, page 150 colon four. They stressed morning quiet time daily, reading and daily contact. They also told me I had to do something about my alcoholism every day. Right? <clears throat> we get a daily reprieve based solely on the maintenance of our spiritual condition, as it says later on. Right? Listen very carefully to this one. I saved the best for last. It comes from Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers, page one hundred thirty-six, colon two. The AA members of that time did not consider meetings necessary to maintain sobriety. They simply were desirable. Morning devotion and quiet time, however, were musts. We go to meetings to meet newcomers to work with, so we can carry the message in the 12th step. Prayer and meditation is how we become the people. We become the spearhead of God's ever-dancing creation. And when I talk about God, I'm talking about your experience with God, your best friend. And if your God is not your best friend, if you do these 12 prayers and 12 meditations, you will find a God that is your best friend. All right? Flip over to page 84 in your big books. 84 colon one. We've all heard, I'm sure, of the promises that they talk about in, the, in, the, in the, a lot of meetings read them. We call them the, 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 the 9 step promises from 83 and 84 out of the big book. Um, <clears throat> that's just one set of promises, folks. There's promises throughout the book. I, I'm kind of anal. I'm kind of an A type. And I've written hundreds of pages about the Big Book and studying it. And I wrote up one day all the musts, nevers, have tos. You know, I put them all into one document. I also put together all the different promises I found in the Big Book. And there's hundreds and hundreds of them. It's pretty amazing. <clears throat> but on 84 1, it says Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Always materialize. But there's a condition to the statement. And every time I come to a con- conditional in this book, I have my guys put a square around it. It says they will all materialize if we work for them, which means I have to take some action. There's got to be work for me to get the promises. This is not no such thing as a free lunch in Alcoholics Anonymous or Alan, You don't just come in here and sit in a meeting and get this thing by osmosis. What you will get is relief from pain but you won't have a spiritual awakening. You'll, you'll, for that hour, you'll feel a little bit better. But when you leave the group, you'll automatically, your spiritual malady start to build and you start thinking forward to your next meeting. Oh, man, I mean, i got to get to a meeting. i got to get to a meeting. I need, I need to get to a meeting. If that's your thought process, you're using your program as a spiritual filling station. You're coming into our meetings and you're taking off some of our spirituality to go back out and try to live life. And very quickly, that tank will run dry you have your own relationship with a God of your own understanding, you can plug into that source of power anytime, anywhere. You can do it in the shower. You can do it in the car. You can do it in your cubicle at work. You know, you can do it in the doctor's office. I had an amazing experience not too long ago. I had slipped and, and hurt my back. All right? I, I was over in London and stepped on some ice and, and uh, fell, and, and I hurt my spine, and I didn't realize it. And We did some x-rays and MRIs, and I'm in the, in the orthopedic surgeon's office a couple months back, and the doctor's telling me, he goes, oh, geez, look at this. You know, your spine shifted over 50% out of alignment with the rest of it. And that's where my brain shut off. I couldn't hear the doctor. And so I did something very uncharacteristic, as I put my hand up. And the doctor says, what? I said, hang on a second, doc. I can't hear a word you're saying. And I prayed out loud. I said, God, I need you here. I need you in this room with me. So I can face this. Because the first thing I heard in my head was, your career is gone. You know, and this pain's going to be with you forever. That's in your hip. You've got problems. You know. But as soon as I plugged into God, what I heard very clearly was the voice I had heard two hours earlier when I said my prayer in meditation. And I, he said, I got you. Don't worry. I didn't bring you this far. You're okay. I was able then to look at the doctor and said, I said the prayer out loud. And the doctor looked at me and he goes, his jaw was hanging up. He was literally slack jawed. He says, I've never seen anybody do that before. I said, welcome to my world, doc. (laughs) You know? And it turns out the doctor was a believer, you know, which was kind of neat, because it it opened up a a whole neat series of events happened, because that doctor and I shared a spiritual experience together in a doctor's office. How cool is that? Only because I bring God with me, wherever I go. You know? Because it says on page 55, the God of your understanding is deep down within you. He's in every man, woman, and child which means me and you, by the way. So if God is within you, even when I'm drinking alcohol, I could pick up a glass of booze right now, and God is no further away from me than he is right here right now. Yet I feel sometimes like God is the farthest from me. Where did he go? He didn't go anywhere. He's still inside knocking. He wants to have this relationship. There's something blocking me. And the whole purpose of the 12 steps and these prayer and meditations is, to remove the garbage, open the, the clogged drain, take out the hairball of resentment, take out the, the, the grease trap-filled fear trap, You know, to open up the channel so that I can hear the voice of God and feel that expression, the God of my understanding. Does that make sense? All right, so let's continue down. So these will materialize if we work for them. This thought brings us to step 10. What thought? The thought of the prayer's coming true if I'm willing to do some work. It's a conditional deal. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You can have the most powerful desire to quit drinking. Desire is absolutely of no avail, it says in our book on the top of page 23. it come to the point of every alcoholic desire is not enough. So what gets you a chair in a meeting isn't enough to keep you there. It takes more. It's going to take work. What is it going to take? Well, this thought brings us to step 10, which suggests we continue to take personal inventory, basically like a mini-daily four-step. And we continue to set right new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. I take guys to prayer and meditation when before they're starting on their fourth step, they're doing 10 and 11 on a daily basis. If you've got this big pile of crap that you've created in your drinking life and from your addiction, let's not create an entire another pile while we're over here, while we're trying to dig this up by doing the fourth and fifth step. Because it's going to take some time to dig through a fourth and fifth step. Let's clean the daily stuff up while we work on the ancient history stuff as we go through. So I teach them prayer meditation right out of the get-go. And I've heard people say, well, wait a minute. You can't talk about God with a newcomer. You'll scare them off. Guess what? Alcohol will scare them right back. I'm not worried about that. My job, according to this book, is to lay the spiritual toolkit at their feet. If they want what I have and they're desperate enough to get it, they have a gift of desperation, they'll pick up the spiritual toolkit. If nothing else, I plant the seed when they go out there, they can't successfully drink anymore because they know the truth. And eventually, if they live, they'll make it back in here. But I digress. All right? This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for a lifetime. And here comes the next thing. It says, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. I've worked with one word in Alcoholics Anonymous for over 20 years, folks. Watch. What does it look like to watch? I'm watching for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. It says when these crop up, it doesn't say if these crop up. They're gonna crop up. And if you haven't had a resentment in a week, guess what? You're going through life asleep thinking you're awake. They're there. But we're tremendous at, at pushing those things down into Pandora's box. If it doesn't trig, peg the meter, we figure, hey, I got it okay. But there's still this low grade agitation that starts our day and we're just kind of crabby and you know that everybody's shaking their heads. You know the gnawing and the ah you get in your life? Guess what's motivating that? That's fear-based resentment. It's in your life. And it gives us a set of instructions. When these crop up, we ask God. There's another square. We're at our second prayer. We ask God at once to remove them. Right? Here comes your instructions. There's four instructions. First piece is we ask God to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately. Sometimes it's the person that you got upset with. You know, I could be sitting there... It, at 7 Eleven, right? And the person's going too slow, the lady that was in front that wanted to count the change out of her purse, and now I'm in a state of agitation. I've got this little mini resentment, and I'm up, and I'm starting to be short with the 7 Eleven clerk. And I'm thinking, come on, I just want that lottery ticket to pay my gas bill. Give me the hurry up. And I'm starting to act short, and I can catch myself if I'm watching. And I see myself in that behavior, and that's not the man I want to be today. So I'll stop myself, and I'll go, oh, excuse me, now, i I'm sorry. I'm I just having a bad day. What did I just do there? I shared it with someone immediately. I shared it with the person I was being mean to. I fulfilled the second requirement. I don't necessarily have to run and get on my sp- phone and call my sponsor and say, you're not going to believe what I just did at 7-Eleven. If I have to, I will. Or I'll call anybody that's in this room and say, hey, I just screwed up. Here's what I have to do about it. But anybody, any other human being, i got to get out of the, you heard me say it this morning, i got to get out of the itty-bitty shitty committee. The voices that are in my head, thats if I'm thinking about it, I'm behind enemy lines. Because in the top of page 23, it says, the problem centers in our mind. So guess what, folks? You have to be out of your mind to find God. You cannot think your way through, through Alcoholics Anonymous or Al-Anon. You have to experience it. And you go through these prayers and meditations to seek power outside of yourself. And the reality is the power is inside of yourself. It's deep down within, and you're just blocked off from it. You've got to remove the block. All right? So we ask God at wants to remove it, which means a prayer. We discuss it with some of us immediately. We make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. So I apologize to the 7-Eleven clerk. And then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. That's the hard piece. Who can I help? So very often, if I've been that way, I'll look at the 7-Eleven clerk and say, you know, I thought I was having a bad day. How are you doing? Are you okay? I had an experience with the coffee lady over there. She provided me great service and she gave me a cup of coffee and she made the correct change and I gave her a tip in the, in the cup and I'm filling up my coffee cup and I looked at her and she had this weird look in her face. And I listened to the still small voice and I said, how are you doing today? And she's like, I'm doing fine. Now, I hadn't done anything wrong, so I wasn't doing this particular thing, but I was following to pay attention to somebody outside of myself. A very unalcoholic behavior, you know? I mean, it's, Normally it's all about us, right? And she says, I'm doing fine. I said, you know, you guys provided some great services that nobody's told you. Thank you very much for your service today. This has been a great experience at this hotel. Everybody here has been very professional. And you could just see her. She kind of puffed right up and she says, well, thank you for saying that. I made the world a little better place because I was in it and I was sober today. Right? So it's easy to do once you learn how to do this. I just have a lot of experience with this because I screw up a lot. But maybe you guys don't. All All right. Then we resolutely church, our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. That's in a very powerful statement. Love and tolerance of others is our code. Huge, right? There's a whole bunch more of, of these prayers, and meditations. We don't have time to cover them all, but I do want to cover one on page 85. Let's look at the next piece. 85: 1. It is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our uh, rest on our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. We are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our meetings. No. Maintenance of our talking to our sponsor. No. Maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day. Wait a minute. Did they just say every day? Every day is a day when we must. Wait a minute. I thought there were no musts in recovery. There's a lot of musts. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. Do you think they really meant all of our activities? yes yeah, they meant all of our activities. That's the deal. There's the vision. Prayer, meditation, and vision. It's right out of the book. Right? Let's go to the top of page 86. right? We know the book in our recovery program gives us a whole bunch of inventories to do. right? We're supposed to have our formal 4 step with formal inventory. And then we have what they call the spot check inventory, and they have the daily inventory. We've all, I'm sure you've probably all heard of those things. If you haven't read, read the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 by 12, the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, and it covers it pretty well. Look at 86 colon one. It says, when we retire at night. Well, one of the things I did is I wanted to go back and do what the first 100 were doing. So I went back and read the original multilet that they before they printed this big book, They wrote out a text, and they sent it around to doctors and got some feedback. And it didn't say, when we retire at night. You know what it actually said is? It says, when you awake in the morning, look back over the day before. So if you look at our history, those quotes that I read to you, what were they doing? They were doing prayer and meditation in the morning to get a vision to carry through the day to be a better human being. So that's what I do today, is I do this in the morning. And this next paragraph, there's 12 questions that were asked here, and I've written them out for you on the back of your sheet, right? Was I resentful, right? The book says, were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, and afraid? There's four questions right there, and I've given you the instructions. If I was resentful, the big book gives us a four-column inventory, right? We write out the first three columns, and then on page 67, there is a 12, p. you notice I like to work with this, the 12 number, 12 steps, 12 traditions, 12 concepts. Here's 12 questions. On page 67, everybody go to page 67, I'm going to show it to you. <clears throat> not 76, I'm dyslexic today. 67, right? Page 67, we're between column 3 and column 4, as the big book gives it to us, right? It says, though we did not like their symptoms, that's what we put into column 2, is their symptoms, what they did that bothered us. Or the way it disturbed us, what, what, the way they disturbed us is what's in column three, right? From, from inventory. Uh, they, like ourselves, were sick too. We asked God. So this is a prayer, right? We're asking God to help us show them the same. Here comes number one. I'm just going to count through the numbers. You're going to have to stick with me. Tolerance is number one. Pity is number two. Patience is number three. That we cheerfully. Cheerfulness. There's number four. Grant a sick friend. Friend. What do we do for our friends? We give them leeway. But remember, we're writing inventory. We're treating them like they're some SOB that should burn in hell. No, this is telling me I'm supposed to be praying for them like a friend. I'm going to give them some, some slack. I'm going to give them some grace that we would give a friend. Uh, if that person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? There's another prayer, right? There's number six. God save me from angry. There's number seven. Thy will be done. There's number eight. Avoid retaliation. There's number nine. Argument number 10. We wouldn't treat sick people that way. If we do, we destroy our chance of being helpful. We cannot be helpful to all people, but at least God will show us. Wait a minute. God's going to show us. There's your vision. He's going to show us how to take a kindly, there's number 11, kindness, and tolerant view of each and every one. Tolerant view is number 12. But wait a minute. Number 1 is tolerance, and number 12 is tolerant view. What's the difference? I like to use an example, and it's kind of gross, but I'm going to use it anyway. Let's say my buddy is a is a nose picker. He's always picking his nose when he's talking to you, right? Because he's my friend, I'll tolerate the fact that he picks his nose. Because I like him so I put up with the fact. Tolerance is something I put up with. Yet in my mind, when I think of him, my friend, let's call him Joe. I think of Joe. I think of him as a nose picker. If I have a tolerant view, I think of him as a sick child of God. I give him grace and compassion. So I no longer I put up with the behavior, but I have to change my attitude towards him, my view of him, and have a tolerant view. Does that make sense, the difference between tolerance and tolerant view? So there's 12 pieces for this prayer. This is called a forgiveness prayer. We say this prayer between column 3 and column 4 of our inventory. Right? So let's go back to page 86 where we were. It says, when we retire at night, when we wake in the morning for us, Were we resentful? If I was resentful, I write out a four-column inventory, which means I really quickly write out who's in column one, what he did to me in column two, how it affected me in column three, and then I take those 12 pieces and I say a prayer for this person that I'm angry with. It can't not soften your heart. Only after I've softened my heart do I look at the four questions in column four. Where was I being selfish? Where was I self-seeking? Where was I dishonest? And where was I afraid? And when I boil that down, I come up with a fear. And I have a fear tool from page 68 that the big book gave me. And I can go give the fear tool to God. You know, give the fear. And it says, at once, I outgrow fear. Fear is what's blocking the channel between me and God at that moment. I'm expressing it as anger. Anytime you see somebody that's angry, anger is always a secondary emotion. It's never a primary emotion. Something's making you get angry. And 99.9% of the time, for this alcoholic, it's fear. We are fear generators. All right? So... There's a pretty good explanation here. So take these through and go through and read these paragraphs. One of the things that Carl taught me is don't ever let anybody read your big book for you. All I'm doing is pointing you to the big book. That's why I wrote the sheet. Now, don't use just the sheet. The sheet is the finger pointing to what you're supposed to be using. You know, If you're focused on the finger, you're focused on the wrong thing. Go to the book yourself. Take this sheet and use it as a guide to lead you through the book. And have your own experience. Ask yourself the questions. What does this mean to me? If you see a conditional, if you see the word if, it means there's a condition for that to happen. Some of the times it's double conditionals. Sometimes it says if this and that. I put a square around the word and. Because if I want this, I have to do this, but I also have to do that. If I just do this, I don't get what I want. Because half measures avail me nothing. And I think that's actually, I'll digress for just a second, one of the expressions in the big book if Bill Wilson were alive I'd ask him I'd talk to him about it because it's very, in chapter 5 in how it works it talks about half measures avail us nothing I don't believe that half measures don't get you half you know what half measures get you sicker you do this program halfway and watch what happens because you don't have alcohol to depend upon all you've got is the resentment and all the nasty emotions and you don't have any way to put the flames out and you become a royal pain in the backside try to watch my words today, you know? So I don't think Bill Wilson was... I think he was meaning something different, but half measures don't avail us half. They get you sicker. You don't get Nick's in a, book, a squat. You don't get diddly. You get sicker, all right? So I digress. So give this a shot. That's the, the, the 12 prayers and 12 meditations that I wanted to talk about. Some people have never meditated before, all right? So I wanted to talk about meditation for a second. And meditations... There's nothing fancy about meditation... Uh, It's pretty straightforward. Um, All meditation means is to get into the present moment. Because in the Far East tradition, they talk about the chatter of a thousand monkeys. It's in your head. And that's the...
0: Hi, thanks for coming to today's podcast. We're reading Limitless Love in the midst of a storm may 13 let's pray father creator of heaven and earth lord we trust you to guide us jesus i trust you jesus thank you for healing us thank you for demonstrating your love through us by your stripes we are healed jesus we're made good through your blood in jesus name amen in the midst of a storm when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there was a rose, a great storm of the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. Matthew eight twenty three twenty six 26. New American Standard. <clears throat> Every one of us can identify with the disciples of this passage. At times in our lives, when we're endearing to live by faith, we become frightened by circumstances. We let the waves of doubt overwhelm our souls, and we qualify for the same loving rebuke the Master gave to the first boat of followers. Why are you afraid, you man of little faith? Actually, that's not only a rebuke, it's a question worth answering. If you study the Greek meanings behind the phrase translated, little faith, you'll find it refers not only to something that is so slight and small, but to something of short duration. So we should ask ourselves why we so often (laughs) run out of faith in the middle of the storm. Why do we let fear cut faith short just when we need it the most? Usually it's because our faith in God's word isn't fully backed by confidence in his love. Again, usually it's because our faith in God's word isn't fully backed by confidence in his love. We know what he said he'll do for us. He said he'll heal us, provide for us, protect us. No doubt about that. But when the winds of trouble blow and the clouds of circumstance threaten we begin to wonder if he's forgotten about us. It may seem to us he is asleep at the helm, insensitivity and unresponsive to our plight. At those times, however, we can show up our faith, we can extend it, ex- its life by remaining, our, reminding ourselves of God's unfailing love. When the first flash of fear arises and we catch ourselves thinking, What if God doesn't provide for me this time? What if he doesn't heal me? We should stop right there and say, No, I refuse to think that way. I refuse to entertain that fear because I know my Father loves me. He loves me so much that he gave himself for me. He loves me so much he promised he never for a single moment leave me or forsake me. If at those times of crisis we'll remind ourselves of our Father's loving care, our fate will endure if we consider how Jesus has proven his compassion by the great sacrifice he has already made for us. We won't grow weary and faint in our minds, Hebrews 12.3. We'll realize God has not only given us his word, he has given us his heart, and even in the midst of the storm we know we are safe and secure in His love. Amen. Beautiful. Our next reading, May 14th, is the key to freedom and fullness of joy. These things, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love, has no one than this that one laid down his life for his friends john fifteen eleven to thirteen New American Standard of all the New Testament writers, the apostle John had the greatest revelation of love in his gospel account in his letters to the church. He makes it clear that walking with God and walking in love go hand in hand. You cannot do one without the other. He also reveals that walking in love, even though it requires us to lay down our lives for others, is not a distressing or depressing thing. On the contrary, it is the key to fullness of joy. The very idea of laying down your life for someone else being a joyful thing is absolutely contrary to natural worldly way of thinking. The world says if you want any happiness, you will have to go after that. After what you want, first and foremost, you have to look out for yourself because no one else would do it for you. According to worldly standards, that's the normal way to live. Yet, self-centered people invariably struggle with depression and oppression. They can't sleep. Their relationships are shallow and unsatisfying. The lifestyle of love, however, is actually the opposite. Love says... Don't seek your own interests first, but the interests of others. Bear one another's burdens if you want to be great. Be the servant of all. The devil will try to talk you out of the lifestyle, that lifestyle. He'll tell you that if you put others, people first, you'll never have anything for yourself. He'll tell you that if you serve others, they'll walk all over you, and you'll end up miserable and sad, but those are just lies. The fact is, The more you lose sight of yourself, the happier you will be. The more you are focused on blessing others, the more abundantly you'll be blessed. A friend of mine once told me of a time when his life, when he was unhappy and things just weren't going the way he had planned, he spent hours on his knees rehearsing, rehashing his problems and asking God to help. Eventually he heard the voice of the Lord saying, son, if you'll just forget about yourself, most of your problems will evaporate. That's not really what he wanted to hear right there and then, but he took it to heart, got his mind off himself, and focused instead on serving others. Recently he said to me, you show me someone who has matured in God, and I'll show you someone who has the ability to go length of time without thinking about himself. I'll show you someone who has discovered what it means to walk in freedom and fullness of joy. Amen. Beautiful, beautiful, wonderful readings. May 15, Kenne open Creation speaks of His love. Psalms 33, 5 says, The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. The Bible repeatedly declares that creation itself, God's beautiful world and everything wonderful within it, it's an expression of the power of the nature of God. Psalms 19:1 says, "The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork." Psalm fifty verse six says, "The heavens shall declare his righteousness." Romans 119 and 20 says, "That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. Consider those statements in light of the fact that God's nature is love and you'll realize that God is constantly declaring His love for you. Not only through the words of the Bible and through the witness of His Spirit in your heart, but through creation itself. The reason the flowers are pretty is because God loves you. The reason fruit tastes good is because God loves you. The reason the the sun shines is because God loves you. The reason the rain comes in the spring is because God loves you. The reason flowers are pretty and girls have a sweet voice is because God loves you. But Brother Copeland, you might ask, what about all those things in the earth that aren't good? Aren't those expressions of God as well? No, they're not. They're an expression of the nature of the devil, who through his sin has warped the earth and robbed it of its full glory. That's why Romans 8 says, The whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Neo-American Standard, looking forward to the return of Jesus and the completion of his redemption plan. Bless God, the day is coming when God's great love will drive out every damnable thing in this earth that has ever caused his children pain. The day is coming when he will deliver creation itself from decay and corruption and bring it into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Until then, however, he will see to it that the best this old earth has to offer is made available to his children. He will continue to give us all good things to enjoy. As he does, we need to receive every one of them as an expression of his compassion and tender care. We need to see in every blossom of spring. We need to hear in the voice of every bird that sings the voice of our Heavenly Father telling us he loves us amen i once bought five acres of land up in Orville in the mountains and it had a plant that was a twist red and hard and twisted very very hard and it was just a unproductive bush and it was all over the place and it just kept growing and just uh, made it impossible for you to plant regular uh, bushes, the only thing that survived was the pine trees I was able to grow along with it, so I I sharpened a golf w- w- a putter where it was like a knife, and I would go around cutting the little stems that were growing all over the place to keep them from becoming adults, you know, it's part of the curse, I believe, <laughs> And once I was up by the Diamond uh, Mountain up in Northern California, uh, where actually De- Devil Mountain they call it, Black Mountain, Devil Mountain, something like that. And there they had a, a ad there that they there was a, a herb, or not even a herb, uh, some kind of plant like echinacea. But it was a bat and it was taken over. It came from Europe and it, it had infested the whole hillside and and it was eating up the grass and the cows were being pushed and pushed back because of that, unable to contain that seed that was just multiplied and it's kind of like a curse, curse in the ground. Uh, my son asked me one time, Dad, why did God make mosquitoes? And... He would always stump me. I was thinking, well, I don't know, <laughs> and uh, probably be it's part of the curse. Mosquitoes, probably flies, are in that. You know, we, we but we found out if you talk to the flies, they'll go to the light. They'll go to the light of the screen, and they'll and it's kind of funny around here. I say, did you talk to the fly? Go to the light. They usually obey, keep them from killing them, and let them out. I love you. God bless you. Give them heaven. Remember, this is God's earth. Let's continue to bless it. And blessings will come back to us when we bless others. I bless you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oops.